Pelicans fans are going to hate Eric Gordon forever and ever, and I don't think anybody's going to ever change that. Like, I threw out a tweet of, like, y'all still boo Eric Gordon, and I got, like, like 10 replies, like, hell yeah, we still boo Eric Gordon. <laughs> yes. They'll give you, like, a PowerPoint presentation on all the reasons they hate Eric Gordon, for sure. What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I'm Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. Here today, a special guest, Will Gillery of The Athletic. What's up, Christian, man? How you doing? It's been it's been a minute since we've been able to chop it up like this. Yeah, man, it has. I think uh, the last time I saw you in person was in the airport on the way back from Sacramento, probably, when it was like basically a, a zombie apocalypse scene. I can't believe it's been that long, but... I know, man. It's, it feels like it was years ago, but that was a crazy day, and we had no idea what the next couple of months were going to look like. And I think it's safe to say we still don't know what the next couple of months are going to look like. <laughs> so I guess that's just life now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember seeing you and Lopez in the airport when we were about to hop on that flight home. And like, I think you just rolled up and you just started laughing. Like it was just, it was just so weird. I mean, I, I went to the airport at like 10 a.m. and there was no line or anything like that. It was, it was eerie. Yeah, it was super strange. I remember us being in the building at, uh, at the Sacramento uh, game and us kind of looking around and the King, and not the Kings, the Warriors already announced that they weren't going to have fans at their next game. And I remember sitting there like, okay, so they're not going to have fans, but we're sitting here in a arena full of fans. So how is this going to work? And then we get the alert from the league that the that the schedule is going to be shut down, and we don't know when the the, the, the league is going to start back up again. And yeah, that I mean that's I can easily say that was my craziest night ever on the beat. And I've had some crazy nights covering this Pelicans team, but that was a, a strange experience for sure. So we're coming at you Wednesday morning after uh, a slate of of two really fun games on Tuesday. Uh, Heat and Celtics was freaking awesome. I mean, that was one of the best blocks I've ever seen in a game. And, you know, Nuggets Clippers was uh, awesome in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to be honest. I thought the Clippers were going to win that game. I thought, you know, the Nuggets, like, a oh, great story, but this is probably the end of the line for you. I definitely didn't foresee the Clippers just outright choking. I mean, I think that Paul George 3 that hit the side of the backboard was like one of the purest bricks I've ever seen in my life. Um, so let me ask you this. I mean, did you did you think that series as a whole was more about the Nuggets winning it and taking it, or did you think it was more about a Clippers collapse? I mean, I think I hate to do this on your podcast. I'd rather do this to <laughs> with somebody else present, but I think you got to give uh, Denver some credit. I mean, those guys coming back from back-to-back, 3-1 deficits, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, of course, the bubble environment kind of, you know, makes all of this weird and it kind of takes away the the historical context compared to other times when teams came back from 3-1. But I mean, to do it in back-to-back series against, you know, two really good teams. Uh, I think Utah, you know, we know how much they were able to show in the bubble and the Clippers with all the talent they have. I mean, you got to give Denver a ton of credit, especially Jokic and Murray. Those guys have grown so much. And I think you can honestly say that Jamal Murray is up there with some of the other stars in this league, and he's jumped maybe more than anybody else during this playoff run. But, man, the Clippers just choked this thing away so crazy. <laughs> I can't believe it. I mean, the playoff P thing, like you said, that shot off of the side of the backboard, it was just like, wow. I mean, that was just the perfect picture of, of this Clippers playoff run, uh, uh, just like 
man, they they did all of that talking, you know, they had all of the hype, all of the expectations, and then once their backs were against the wall, they just completely crumbled. And it's got to be really scary if you're a Clippers fan or if you're you're working in that front office because Kawhi and PG's got one more year left on their deals, and uh, they've got a history of, of leaving when they don't like their surroundings. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see the next couple steps this team takes to kind of try to keep it together and maybe make one more run uh, going into the next season. Yeah, I mean, I I got to toot my own horn here a little bit. I thought that the Nuggets <laughs> had a pretty good chance in the series. I mean, I didn't think they were going to win, but it basically boiled down to, you know, the Clippers don't really have a good option to throw Nikola Jokic. It's either Zubac or Montrez Harrell. And, you know, Montrez Harrell's just, he's just too small. I mean, he just can't do it. Zubac, I mean, he tried, but he definitely wasn't up to it. And then, you know, you saw the Clippers trying to double Jokic in game seven, and that plays right into his hands. I mean, Jokic, Jokic loves passing more than he loves scoring. Like, you, you could just see him get himself going. Like, he, he invites that double team. I mean, I, I think that, you know, him and LeBron are probably the two players in the league more than anybody of if you double them, like, they're just going to kill you. They're so well-equipped with, you know, the precision with the passing and the size that they have to, to kill that, that type of action. Yeah, and I think in particular, uh, everybody's going to kill Paul George and Kawhi, rightfully so, because they didn't show up for Game 7. But I think the biggest loss for this Clippers team, the difference between the bubble team and the team we saw earlier in the season, was Lou Will and Montrez Harrell. I think those guys were like a shell of themselves during the bubble, and obviously they had a whole bunch of reasons for that. Montrez, you know, was dealing with the loss of his grandmother. Uh, Lou Will, you know, had to buy some wings from Magic City, so he had to sit out for 10 days. So, and, you know, the Clippers were mentioning that last night. You know, they, they just couldn't really gain a, a rhythm. Some of their guys were in and out of the lineup. And I think, in particular, Lou Will and Trez, I mean, we saw it several times this year against the Pelicans. That pick and roll where they come in and they run that two-man game with Lou Will and Trez, they destroy teams, especially if your big man really doesn't know what to do in that pick and roll situation. They kill you. And they just couldn't get that going at all for whatever reason during the bubble. And I think when Trez and Lou aren't contributing offensively, they just kill you because they, they're not known for their defense, especially in a matchup against a guy like uh, Nikola Jokic, where he's just going to dominate a smaller big guy if you try to put him uh, against Jokic. So I think when you don't have that extra punch coming off the bench with Lou and Trez, you saw just kind of how shallow this Clippers team was outside of Kawhi and PG. And then when those two guys didn't show up, uh, you saw them score 89 points in a do-or-die game. Yeah, I've seen um, some people kind of comparing Jokic and AD, and they're about to match up here in, in the Western Conference Finals. And I think it's a really interesting comparison because, I mean, they're just so different the way they have success you know, couldn't be more different from each other in a lot of ways. I mean, I think they're the two best bigs in the league in in some order. Um, You know, I've seen people try to have the debate of like, well, who's better? And I think in general, like those are kind of silly debates because it's so much of it is dependent on situation. And and I guess Mm -hmm. where I kind of fall on this and love to know what you think is that I think if, you know, you're asking a guy to carry your team through 82 games and like be the number one option for a playoff run that I actually think I might go with Jokic. But at the same time, I mean, I think unquestionably, you know, if if you're trying to pair somebody next to like LeBron or like an elite, you know, perimeter creator and scorer, AD is, is the better option, if that makes sense. I mean, I think AD 
is better for the situation he's in and Jokic is better for the situation he's in. Yeah, I think overall, personally, I would probably lean a little bit more AD just because I think he's a much better defensive player. And I think he's much more capable. I don't want to say more capable, but he's just better playing off the ball. I think he's the maybe the best off-ball scorer in the league just because of everything he can do, shooting, finishing at the rim, pick and roll. I mean, he can he can kill you in so many ways without ever really having the ball for a long time. And I think Jokic can do a little bit of both, but I think AD is just a, a little bit more efficient. But I do think where they separate themselves is that Jokic is just so big and and so capable of scoring in the post that at some point during just about every playoff series we've played and he's we've seen him playing, teams have just had to start sending doubles at him. Even though you don't want to double him, you know he's probably the best passing big man of all time. And I know that's been a point of contention in some of these broadcasts if he's the best passing big man of all time. But I think everybody knows when you play the Nuggets, you don't want to double Jokic. You don't want to double Jokic because he's such a good passer. But then you see him score some of those weird jump hooks and some of those right-footed fadeaways and these weird shots and you have to send doubles at him and that's when he kills you and that's when he gets all of those shooters going so I think it's going to be really interesting because I think like you said a lot of a lot of the talk is going to be AD versus Jokic but I think uh, one of the reasons why AD loves the construction of his Lakers roster is that he has a Dwight Howard he has a JaVale McGee he doesn't have to worry about banging with Jokic and throughout a seven-game series the way he would have in a, in a New Orleans environment. And I think that's going to be really important to see how Dwight, how JaVale kind of handled that matchup and how much it frees AD to up to do all the things we know he can do on the offensive end. Because if he's got his legs and he's not worried about playing defense against Jokic, I think he can dominate the, the Nuggets because they really don't have a matchup for him on the other end. Yeah, as far as the greatest passing big man of all time discussion goes, I actually uh... – like did a whole project where I tried to answer that question um, when I when I did cover the Nuggets. Um, in my you know passing is a very subjective thing, but in my humble opinion, I think the best two passing bigs ever are, are Vita Sabonis, who you know didn't have that long of a run in the NBA mainly because of injuries, and he just couldn't come over because you know the Soviet Union wanted to to keep him over in Europe. Um, and Jokic, and I actually uh, posed that question to. Arturis Karnasovas, he was the number two in Denver before he took over in Chicago because Arturis played with uh, a Sabonis back in the day. And then, of course, he, he helped draft Jokic. And, you know, what he said was he thought Jokic was the best passing center he's ever seen because of Jokic's ability to pass it on the move. Like, from a standstill, he kind of thought that Sabonis was, you know, right there with him. But, like, Jokic, Jokic handles the ball. Like, he's like their basically their point guard in the half court and like he's bringing the ball up all the time um so in my humble opinion it's Jokic to the surprise of probably nobody listening to this podcast um but as far as the um you know the Lakers Nuggets series goes um you know I would love to sit here and say like the Nuggets are going to make it competitive um uh, but I don't feel that at all I mean you've you've you covered AD for a long time AD I think is the toughest matchup for Jokic in the entire league and plus the Lakers have a bunch of other bigs they can throw at him. I mean I think back to that game that Denver opened the season against New Orleans and AD had that 50 piece. I mean I think it's uh it's just a really tough matchup for Denver. I mean they can put Jokic in the spread pick and roll and he just struggles, you know, with LeBron. I mean everybody does, but you know, too I think the combination of AD's athleticism and his length is just it's just really tough for Jokic. Yeah, and I was going to say before you mentioned him, we haven't even started talking about LeBron yet. And I think what makes that combination so lethal is that not only AD's skill set and how he can kind of 
hit you up from from so many different ways, and he you know he can score from the perimeter, he can score in the post, he can score in transition, all those different ways. But he's got a guy like LeBron there to feed him as well and make the game easier on him. Where when we were watching him in New Orleans, a lot of the offense was him isolating on the wing, creating for himself. And now with L.A., a lot of it is just playing off of LeBron and just allowing LeBron to create shots for him. And that just makes him even more dangerous. So I think that two-man, I, I think, you know, this isn't breaking news, but I think the series is going to come down to the L.A. two-man game with LeBron and A.D. versus the Denver two-man game with Jamal Murray and Jokic. And, I mean, we've been doubting those guys throughout the playoffs, Murray and Jokic. You know, they we've been saying how inconsistent Jamal Murray is. Oh, Jokic isn't, doesn't have the fire, you know, in these playoff environments. And they keep proving us wrong, so I'm not going to write them off just yet. But I, I just think, man, that, that matchup with LeBron and AD and the way they feed off of each other is extremely dangerous. And I think if they don't find a way to kind of slow AD down, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a short series. Do you think Pelicans fans need to start preparing for the possibility that uh, Anthony Davis is going to win a championship here? Because uh, I'm kind of getting there. Yeah, there was a whole lot of talk when uh, Brandon Ingram was doing his thing during the year and Lonzo was hitting seven threes and people were saying, oh, they, they got over it on the Lakers. And, man, I can't believe you guys gave us all of this just for AD. <laughs> and now if AD goes on to win a championship, there's going to be a lot of sour people in New Orleans. But, uh, man, I just think this L.A. team, they're just so good. And I think, I think what you got to give them so much credit for and what we saw the Clippers were lacking is that they find a way how to mesh on and off the court. And I think people sleep on that when we see these super teams come together, how they can kind of mesh and want to play together and want to fight through these bad uh, points. And I think that we've seen kind of the Lakers go through some lows here and there, but they've always found a way to rebound. And I think you got to give a lot of credit to AD and LeBron for the bond they've built from day one, and, you know, some snarky Pels fans are probably saying, yeah, they were building that while AD was still wearing a Pelicans jersey. <laughs> uh, but the, the bond they have, I think that's what ties that Lakers team together, and it's allowed them to get through everything this year, and ultimately it's going to put them in a real good position to win a championship this year, and you got to give them credit, and for whatever reason, Kawhi and PG just weren't able to develop that. I think one of the funniest subplots from the Lakers season was when LeBron and AD got matching tattoos. Do you do you and Lopez have matching tattoos? We do not, and we uh. are never going to do that. <laughs> I, I, we we might I, I might get like a, a I don't want to curse on your podcast, but I might get like a F Holy Cross podcast uh, uh, tattoo and see if he can match that with me. Oh, right across the belly. Yeah, right across my chest, you know, saying okay. something like that. <laughs> I, I'm always down to, to downgrade uh, Holy Cross, so we can try to make that happen. Okay, all right, I, I support that. I support that. Um, you know, I'm I'm a relative newcomer here, but I I feel like you know the the anger directed towards AD is not so much that that he wanted out. It's it's just the way that he did ask out and and went about it. Do you think that's fair to say that if he had just you know, handle it a little better. I mean, maybe done it during the off season or even waited till he only had one year left on the contract versus just like nuking the season halfway through that he would be remembered a little bit better here. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, it's no secret that people were trying to get AD out of New Orleans basically from the day he signed his rookie extension. I, I mean, you know, with the failures they had, missing the playoffs, all of the injuries, it was kind of a ticking time bomb. Everybody knew before AD kind of looked around and said, okay, I need something better than this. Uh, I think everybody kind of knew that was going to come one day, but the way he did it during the middle of the season kind of, you know, kind of being iffy the whole way through, kind of uh, saying he wanted out but not saying he wanted out, saying I have a list but I don't have a list, uh, doing the whole clutch thing before the season, uh, sticking around after the trade demand. I think he was very poorly handled, if I, I'm going to be really honest about it. And I think it, it kind of did a disservice to what he did in New Orleans because I think he deserves to be looked at as the best player in the history of the franchise. And he did a lot despite, you know, all of the injuries and poor management he dealt with. And I think the growth that he showed from that skinny kid who came from Kentucky to a dude who, you know, is one of the top three two-way players in the league. Uh, I think you got to give him a ton of credit for the way he developed his game year in and year out. Uh, but I think so much of his issue, I think, in New Orleans, was he allowed so much of his destiny to be dictated by others. And I think ultimately uh, that's the way it ended was, you know, him allowing his departure from New Orleans to be dictated by others and, and ended up, you know, kind of burning down a lot of what he built here. Yeah, maybe the biggest or at least like the last – slap in the face that people remember is the that's all folks shirt um this is kind of the last thing of the day before we move on but um do you think he really uh does not dress himself do you think he has someone who <laughs> picks out his clothes <laughs> no i i think uh i kind of well, for one i do not think big shot picked out the t-shirt t-shirt for him like he said <laughs> so i want to start there i don't know why he threw poor big shot under the bus so the people who don't know that's the uh, longtime equipment manager for the pelicans he's the guy who hangs the jerseys in the closet he doesn't pick the guys t-shirts before the games so i i don't think it was big shot but i do think you know these guys have stylists they they, they have people bringing in them t-shirts but i do think he was he was able to add one plus one and see that once he threw on a t-shirt that said that's all folks going into his final game that people were going to understand what he was doing uh, but I, I do think after a while, he kind of he, he started wanting to troll the Pelicans fans the way they were trolling him. I think he was kind of upset because he I think his ego was a little bit hurt because he felt that he did a lot for the community. And he felt like he did a lot in New Orleans and people kind of just threw him in the trash after the trade demand. And, and I think he kind of wanted to troll the fan base. And, you know, I, 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 again, I, I'm a guy that, you know, I think AD did a lot of good here. I, I don't I don't hate AD the way a lot of New Orleans people do, but I, I can understand why, what the, where that animosity comes from is because you want a, a guy who did everything he did here to kind of go out with a better note. Yeah, I feel like being at that uh, return game, you know, AD's first game in New Orleans as a Laker, um, you know, he got booed the entire time, but I felt like it was all in good fun. Like, I never felt like anybody crossed the line or anything like when LeBron went back to Cleveland for the first time. Yeah, I think I heard on a recent podcast Dwayne Wade talking about how you can feel the hate from the locker room. He said the heat, we're in the Cleveland Row locker room and you can feel the hate through the walls. That's how that's how heavy it was in the arena when LeBron returned to Cleveland. And I don't think it was like that in New Orleans. I think people uh, were more than ready to boo AD all night, but I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a whole lot of hate there. It's just kind of like, uh, come on, man. Like, really? Like, you're going to go to LA and play with LeBron? Like, that's how you're going to do us? I think it's more of that than like the burning jerseys, we'll hate you forever, you know, vibe that Cleveland was giving LeBron when he left. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I've learned being on this beat, you could make a case that AD is not even the most disliked player among the fan base. I think that might be Eric Gordon. (laughs) Oh, it will forever and ever be Eric Gordon, which is hilarious because Eric Gordon played five years here. He never demanded a trade. (laughs) He was part of a playoff run with them. I mean, he had some good moments, but yeah, Pelicans fans are going to hate Eric Gordon forever and ever, and I don't think anybody's going to ever change that. Yeah, I was not. I didn't. I was not aware of all the history there. Like, I threw out a tweet of like, "Y'all still boo Eric Gordon," and I got like like ten replies, like, "Hell yeah, we still boo Eric Gordon." (laughs) They'll give you like a PowerPoint presentation on all the reasons they hate Eric Gordon for sure. Yeah, I got I got educated that night. Um, So I have been in New Orleans for ten months now. I guess kind of coming up on a year, and I threw together a list of annoying and cliche stuff that transplants do. And I want to read it to you and let me know what you think. Um, number oh, one. I love this. Yeah, I, I actually did this like after three days of being here and I look back in embarrassment. But take a picture of the street tiles. Um, I oh, feel like that's yes. a really big thing. Um, number two thing. is talk about the food. Everybody loves to be like, oh, great food here. And there is great food. But like that's just, you know, on high in the list of bullet points of talking points. Um, number three. Talk about people's resilience. Uh, people are very resilient here, but that's another one of like the lines about New Orleans. Yes. Um, yeah, those are those were the three things I came up with. What did you think? Absolutely, I agree with all three. The resiliency is one that we hear all the time, but I think I feel like it's just kind of a, a trait that a lot of people have. Like if you know, I do feel like the story of us coming back from Katrina, you know, is really unique. But to kind of hear about that constantly over and over again. It does get old after a while, and I and I 100% agree that people who aren't from New Orleans talk about the food way more than people who are from New Orleans talk about it. I guess we're just kind of used to it at this point. But <laughs> yeah, everybody who comes here want to know about the, the the best seafood spot or where do I go to get the best gumbo? And it's like, yeah, okay, man, I got gotcha. you. Just go to the spot around the corner. Yeah, um, I think JJ Reddick actually put it put it pretty well earlier this season I mean I think he was on the Pelicans podcast and he just talked about you know what he likes about living in New Orleans Um, and he said something along the lines of like it's kind of an untouched place and there's an authenticity to the people here that that there is in no other part of the country and I I totally agree with that like there's a genuineness to the people here like it they're nice and it, it doesn't feel like there's anything fake about it at all. Yeah, I, I, that's that would be the number one trait I would bring up whenever people ask me, you know, what makes New Orleans New Orleans? I would say it's the people and the way we converse with each other. I mean, you, I'm sure you've seen it since you've been here, how you'll walk into a store and somebody will just start talking to you out of nowhere and you'll chop it up for like five minutes about the Saints. So, you know, what's up with Michael Thomas's ankle injury or whatever? You, you just run into people and just talk about nothing, you know, people you've never even seen before. And it's just all the time. You know, I think people here are just very open. They, they love, you know, just, just being around other people. I think that's what we're all about, just being around people, just enjoying life. And that's what makes New Orleans New Orleans. And, you know, I think people who come here, they expect one thing, and it's very different once you're here for a couple of months. And you expect it to be like this wild party town and people <laughs> falling in the streets drunk. And you're going to see that every now and then. But I think it's a much more laid-back, chill place, uh, chill vibes, and I think people would expect once you move here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember when I was getting ready to make the move, I hit up, you know, some people in Denver who'd lived here before, and I told them like, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna live in Maroney, and they're like, Maroney? 
the hipster part of town is that uh <laughs> is that uh your perception of this part of town what do you what do you think of i guess Meredy and the bywater well, you know, I run a joke is that we always say Christian is a big hippie. So I would say whatever <laughs> part of your town you're in is the hippie part of town. Okay. Uh, but no, nah, I'm cool with Marity. Marity's cool, man. I, I think, yeah. I, and I, I want to, I'm afraid to say this on a public platform, but I, I want to start reeling back my, my, uh, my uh hipster hate on christian i think he's <laughs> he's slowly developing to a new orleanian you know before i have very eyes so i'm proud of the growth you've shown since the, you first touched down not too long ago <laughs> uh, i appreciate that um so you have a, a new weekly column um the first one went out this week it's called sorry for the wait um i thought you touched on some really interesting stuff in there uh, you know i guess the crux of it was about you know drew holiday and, and could he become the Pelicans, Kyle Lowry. Um, and I want to ask about that, but first I think we should talk about, uh, the Zion stuff. Um, Jay Adande wrote this profile of Zion in, what was it? Men's health. Um, and you know, one of the details that he included was just basically about how protected, and I guess the word might be insulated Zion seems to be. I mean, Jay Adande, obviously a, a legend in the game, like he's on the phone with Zion and, you know, he, he says that his mother, his agent, was on the phone. Um, and I just thought it was really interesting because I, you know, I kind of, I guess, saw some of that this season too, where maybe there is some reticence to like, just, just let Zion be his full self publicly. Um, did, did you get that sense this year too? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's hard to explain unless you're people like us who are around a lot I think when you see Zion in some of these interviews and some of the answers he gives, it's like, man, this guy is so candid. He's so open. He he, he has such a personality for a 19-year-old kid, I guess 20-year-old kid now. And he's so, and he's, he's, he deals with the media so well. And I would say that's 100% true. One of the things I used to always say when people ask me about Zion is I've never seen a 19-year-old handle the media as well as he did during his rookie season with the way he was able to kind of deal with all of these same questions over and over again, but give answers in a way that it felt unique to whatever reporter was asking them. He, he would have those moments where he'd look in your eye and you would have these real moments where you kind of have, he'll kind of say, Hey, where, why, where did that question come from? Or why, why did you ask that? Or what made you think of that? And you know, you, you, you know, uh, a lot of guys just want to give you the answer and get the hell out of the building. But it's rare that I think Zion's one of those rare guys. So he's willing to have a convo with you. He's willing to kind of, break down where his mind is but I think also there's this wall there where you're not going to get completely inside and you're not going to completely know you know how his mindset works or what's behind some of the things he does and it's it's super interesting I think part of that is he's still very young you know they don't want to expose him to a lot of the stuff that some of the other superstars in this league have dealt with in the past and we've seen how that stuff has kind of backfired on guys but I do think that I wrote this in my column, and I think at a certain point that it helps for people to just to know the more human side of these guys. And I think that's when fans really love players more. I think people kind of fell in love with LeBron more after his failures in Miami. I think people fell in love with Steph more after his 3-1 debacle against the Cavs. I would say watching Kevin Durant, I think people probably just love to see Kevin Durant fail <laughs> after the Golden State thing regardless. <laughs> but I think the fact that he showed more of himself in the Twitter stuff and him arguing with media and all of that, I think showing a more human side of you, I think that's what separates NBA players from other professional athletes is that we're around these guys so much and we see them grow up and we kind of identify them as real people. And it's not about the jerseys they wear. A lot of times it's 
we care about who these people are. And I think Zion is going to get there eventually. But I do think they kind of have to, you know, loosen a leash a little bit for him to get to that point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, it's such a unique situation because he's probably got more attention on him than, you know, any, any 19, 20 year old since LeBron James. And, you know, LeBron didn't even really have to come up in like the social media era. So there is that added element to it. Um, But I think it's, I mean, fair to say, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Zion was just very heavily coached on kind of what to say to the media this year. Like I felt like, you know, he had smart PR communication strategist people like tell him like, Hey, these are the talking points and maybe we're not going to deviate from them. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. And he's also really good at delivering a line too. Like I remember, you know, when he was coming back, there was like the video of him, uh, you know, maybe nodding off on the bench and he hit us with like the, uh, the line, you guys caught me meditating or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. He's pretty funny, man. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of with you. I would just, I get, you know, why there is this hesitancy to like, open him up to the world like I'm sure so many people want a piece of him but at the same time yeah I mean I think it's fair moving forward to just want a little bit more yeah and I think again I think it's understandable because he's still so young they want to kind of protect him a little bit and you know he's still got a lot of growing to do I think being around him I you know I don't want to call him you know any immature or childish or anything like that but he's still a kid when you're around him when you see him talk when you see him converse with his teammates you can see that he's still a very young guy and you know he's still got a lot of growing up to do so I think they want him to kind of experience that a little bit before he opens up and they want to have him you know go through some more life experiences and I think in particular I think the lack of you know, speaking up, he did on some of the social justice issues, I think was kind of eye opening. Uh, we asked him about it a couple times during Zoom interviews and you, you can kind of tell he didn't want to really touch on it. And I think that's something that, you know, I, I would like to see him kind of grow into more because if you're going to have such a large platform, we talked about this throughout this bubble experience that if these guys are going to have all this attention, all of these Twitter followers, I think you should want to use it for good and you should want to help people and speak up for issues that matter to you. And I think he's a guy that's smart enough to speak on these type of topics. I think he's just got to get more comfortable with it. And I think that's going to come with time. But ultimately, it's got to start with them, just like you said, not coaching him up as much, not feeling like they need to control every little thing that's going on with him. And I think that's going to make fans appeal to him more. And I think it'll allow his personality to shine more because I do think he would be great in these environments where he can kind of open up and speak his mind because I think he's a really smart kid and he has stuff to say. He just really hasn't been allowed to say it yet. Yeah, covering these super young guys, I can't help but think of what I was like when I was 19 or 20 years old, like a a freshman or sophomore in college. And I, (laughs) I can tell you without a doubt, like if I had had, if I was making $10 million, I would have been a disaster. I mean, I was already kind of a disaster. So I always, I always just try to keep that in the back of my mind that like these dudes are so young and they're just not fully formed people and and you just have to have patience and work with them. It's just, that's the, it's the absurdity of the NBA that like everything's kind of hinging on like these people who are still just kind of kids. Yeah, these kids who were two years removed from high school. I remember watching Jackson Hayes, and I'm like, man, two years ago, this dude was in high school. And now he's got millions of dollars in his pocket. He's got first-round pick expectations. He's thrown into the starting lineup to begin the year. And it's like, 
this dude is still a kid, man. Like, he's still playing Call of Duty every night when he goes home. Like, he's still arguing with his little cousins about their favorite cartoons and stuff <laughs> like that. Like, I mean, these dudes are so young coming into the NBA. And then a guy like Zion, he comes in with all these expectations. And he's expected to carry a franchise and bring them back from the dumpster fire that AD lit up last year. And it's like, man, can this guy, like get a driver's license first because this guy you know figure out where he's gonna live and how to cook meals for himself every day uh, i think we we put a lot on these guys early on but i do think i just that's just part of the nba experience i mean we saw how much lebron had to grow up in front of our eyes and i think that's something you got to deal with but the one thing i say over and over again about zion is that he deals with it about as well as anybody i've ever seen especially because he gets so much more attention than the average 19-year-old coming out in the draft. And the way, you know, we haven't seen basically anything with him off the court or any of these social media mishaps we've seen with a few other Pelicans players. Uh, we've seen none of that with Zion. And I think uh, it says a lot about his upbringing and just his mentality. And, and again, I think what we've seen from him, it shows that he can be that kind of spokesperson the way Chris Paul and LeBron has grown into the league. I think Zion is going to get there one day. It's just about him maturing into that role eventually. The other point you made in your column, um, you you basically made a, a strong case for the Pelicans, you know, holding on to Drew Holiday. They, I think that's, you know, maybe kind of the key decision of the offseason. Um, if you're not able to sign him into an extension, you know, this is potentially his last year under contract. I'm, I'm kind of with you. I mean, I guess where I fall on this is like, you, you, you just, you just, I mean, Drew Holiday, look, I mean, it was, look, he, he just didn't really live up to like the dark horse MVP talk or anything like that going into the year, but he's still really freaking good. And if these young guys develop and like, then you're asking him to be like the number two or a number three, I think you're in a really good spot. I mean, Drew Holiday, we should, I think, we should appreciate him for what he is, uh, myself included. You know, I probably nitpick too much, but I I, th- I think I'm kind of with you. I mean, Drew Holiday is really freaking good. I mean, yeah, like you said, I've been around this team a long time, and you, you've been next to me during some games where I'm just like, Drew, why are you throwing that pass? Drew, did you really have to pull up right there for the three? Like, you couldn't set up the offense. Like, I do that all the time when I'm watching Drew. But I do think that you're exactly right. I think he's the perfect kind of number three option you will want on a really good playoff team i think how selfless he is how he doesn't really care about his shots how he's 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 been begging the pelicans to play off the ball how many guards in the league do you hear tell their team hey take the ball out of my hands i don't want the ball give it to somebody else i mean that's something we've heard from drew over and over again and i think he fits really well next to bi and zion as a defender as a guy who can create shots on his own who can play without the ball who can take big shots at the end of games, who can speak to the media when those guys aren't comfortable doing it in certain situations. I think he checks off so many boxes you want with this team. I think obviously the big question is how are they going to handle his contract situation? You don't want a situation where he's walking for nothing. I think that would be a disaster. Uh, but I do think everything he brings, man, it, it, it would be so so tough to give that up for a couple draft picks and, and maybe one young piece you hope to be good down the line when you know what he brings on and off the court. And I think the point that I mentioned in my column, I think it can't be it can't be ignored that the fan base here loves him. And you, you might have not known that before coming here, but being here, they absolutely adore Drew Holiday for the way he handled the AD situation, 
for the way he bounced back after, you know, Lauren, his wife, went through her situation with their first kid. And just the way he represents the team, I think they really love Drew as a person here in New Orleans. And I think it's good to have those kind of guys on the team, especially in a place where, you know, we don't have a lot of basketball history in here in New Orleans. There aren't a lot of guys who you can say, hey, this is a guy we can bring back and have a, all the fans cheer for him and remember all the good times. <laughs> you know, those guys don't exist here in New Orleans. And I think having that guy here, when things start going well, I think it'll bring the fan base in even more. And I think having uh, just what he brings on and off the court, I think is going to help this team and their continued growth. Yeah, I mean, when uh, when Lonzo played well there from like late December until, you know, the season was suspended indefinitely, you know, no one was happier than Drew Holiday. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he, he said on the record basically that like, you know, I don't want to have to do everything for this team. And I think, you know, if if they are able to agree to an extension, like I think Drew could could look really, really good as long as, you know, he doesn't have so, so much on his plate because I think he's a fantastic complimentary piece. And like, I think he's coveted around the league. I think a lot of different teams want him. So I guess all, all this is to say, I mean, if you are going to move him, like you better get a lot because he's really good. And I think he's a guy who can, who's kind of built for the playoffs. Um, so I think that'll be really interesting. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you before I let you get out of here, um, as far as the head coaching search goes, um, you know, we, it's been pretty quiet. Um, and I don't think I have a lot to say about this other than, you know, here are some guys who make sense. Here are their resume and here's their philosophy. I, I definitely don't feel comfortable, you know, saying like, here's why this guy is the right head coach. Uh, what do you what do you just think are important qualities in, in whoever David Griffin tabs next? It's funny because I've been doing this little series on the athletic where I kind of name a bunch of coaches and profile, you know, the, the strengths and weaknesses and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think every everyone I've put out the reaction as well, this guy isn't good on offense and this guy is going to make us bad on defense. And I think for me, I think so much of what the Pelicans should be looking for has nothing to do with on the court stuff. I think so much of it has to do with building a culture in the locker room, having a voice that's loud enough to speak where it matters and you take less weight off of Zion and Brandon Ingram, uh, being a spokesperson where there's not that disconnect between you and the front office. I felt like there was that existed between Alvin Gentry and the front office before where they weren't always on the same page when it came to stuff like Zion's minutes or, you know, how they're going to approach the bubble and all that kind of stuff. So I think so much of it has nothing to do with what type of offense are they going to run? How are they going to handle pick and roll coverages? I think, you know, that stuff, of course, it matters down the line, but I think you got to bring a culture setter in here. And I think that's, that's the number one thing I want to see from the next coaches. How are they going to build an environment, a culture around these young guys that not only allows them to grow, but sends the message to, to other JJ Reddicks and Derek favors down the line to say, okay, I want to be a part of what they're doing. I think part of the reason why those two guys came here, and I think obviously Favors came in a trade, but I think part of the reason why they were both so open to coming to New Orleans was the potential of Zion and B.I. and all of those young guys. And they thought, okay, if I jump on this train early, maybe we can go somewhere. But I think going into the future, they've got to show to these veteran role players, okay, here's reasons A, B, and C why I want to play in New Orleans. And, you know, so many of these other teams, they have the advantage of, hey, I can live in L.A. I can live in New York. I can play on a team that's an immediate championship contender. 
and the Pelicans just aren't that yet. So I think they've got to find other reasons to kind of attract players where they're not going to have as much money to spend in free agency once you give the guys start giving guys like Bi and Lonzo their contracts. So I think you got to build a culture that's attractive to other players. And I think one part that I always mention is that we went through this with Anthony Davis and Drew Holiday, where we said, "Wow, these guys are really good, but they're not." big voices in the locker room. And when things start going bad, they kind of just kind of sit there and not allow it, but they don't kind of stem the tide the way you you see some of these other veterans do. And I think we're kind of heading in that same direction a little bit with Zion and B.I. As much as I love those guys on the court, they're not very vocal. They're not going to be the leaders in the locker room, at least not for the next couple of years. And I think you got to get some of that from your head coach and you got to have somebody that's going to be a leader for this team. So I think that's going to be extremely important. So I'm looking more off the court than really on the court. I, I think I agree with you. I mean, you know, being a great X's and O's tactician is not just that important in my humble opinion for this, this head coaching job. I think it is about establishing a culture, like you said, you know, figuring, you know, getting someone in here who can help Zion grow into that leadership role and, and continue to develop some of those young guys. Um, well, I know you have a heart out, um, so just wanted to say thanks for doing this, man. Uh, hey, thanks for giving the Nuggets some props, too. I know, man. That really hurt my soul because I've been hating on the Nuggets <laughs> behind the scenes all year to your face. So I got to give you your props. You've been repping them all year. You've been telling us we're wrong, so you got to you gotta own your light, man. I'll give you all your shine right now. All right. Well, I, I don't think I'm going to get to be annoying at all in our little uh, group chat anymore. I think, <laughs> I think the fun is over. Uh, so... <laughs> Hey, man, you, you know the Lakers are good for giving a game once. So you might have one more game left in you. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, appreciate you for listening. Talk to you next week.